0: Would you take your Bibles and turn to Malachi? Uh, We're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 6 to 14. Uh, Pastor Jason got us started last week taking a look at this book as we continue our study in the minor prophets. Today we're talking about something that I'm titled, The Sins of the Clergy. But it's not just a message for pastors or priests. It is a message for all of us, and we'll see that as we go through it. I'd like to read this passage of scripture for us so we can have it in mind as we walk through the text. Beginning of verse six, the scripture says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? And if I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now, implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will He accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations. From the rising to the setting of the sun, in every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table it is defiled, and of its food it is contemptible. And you say, What a burden! And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text... You used Malachi to speak to the sins of the people in that generation. God, would you use his word this morning, your word, to speak to us. Challenge us. Encourage us. And Lord, where there is conviction that cuts deep in our heart, would you also be gracious to show us the way in which we can live so that we might please you in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago in early July, there was a story in the news that was absolutely shocking. It was a story of a doctor in Detroit who intentionally told healthy patients of his that they had cancer, when they didn't. And then he prescribed aggressive chemotherapy that they had to go through, he was telling them in order to be well, even though it was unnecessary. It resulted in more than 500 of his patients who were seriously hurt by that, who were victims of malpractice, and they had brought this lawsuit. And in that lawsuit, he also admitted that he had done all of this for money, and he had billed Medicare for $34 million of treatment that was absolutely unnecessary. It was appalling what he had done. And I talk to some of the doctors that I know and I ask them, you know, how do you feel when you hear a story like that in the news? And it just, it grieves their heart. I mean, they just feel like there are so many good doctors, so many people that are dedicated to their profession and helping people that whenever you have these stories of a few bad apples, if you will, they hope that it doesn't undermine people's confidence in the medical system because this man violated that basic trust that there needs to be between a doctor and the patient. You know, I feel the same way when I hear stories in the news about clergy abuse, sexual immorality, pastors who are preaching a health and wealth gospel who are in it for themselves just to enrich themselves, people who abuse the flock or take advantage of people and are not honoring God by their ministry. It grieves my heart And even more so when I hear of pastors and churches and even whole denominations that have moved away and abandoned the gospel and they've moved away from the authority of God's word and they're basically teaching the thoughts of men or what they think uh, should be taught or how it should be instead of sticking to the scripture and preaching the living word of God. And because of that, churches flounder and people are drifting, and it's no wonder we see many of the problems that we see in our society because there's a failure to hear and preach the Word of God faithfully. And in my heart, honestly, I swing between anger and grief. There are times when I just get angry when I hear that. It makes me mad. I mean, God's people deserve better. The church deserves better. God deserves better. He needs people who will be faithful to teach what he has said. But I also grieve. I grieve because quite honestly, they don't know the Lord. And they need to have a genuine relationship with him. Well, this is a passage that deals with the sins of the clergy. And it's hard to talk about the sins and shortcomings of your own profession and when I do that, I also understand what the Scripture says, you know, and Paul gives this warning that, therefore, if anyone thinks he stands, let him take heed lest he fall. I mean, we need to do this humbly. And this isn't just a message for the clergy. It starts there, but it is broadened. Because in this text, Malachi takes direct aim at the priests in his day who had become lazy and indifferent to the service of the Lord. But then he broadens it to include all the people because sadly, tragically here, as the clergy goes, so goes the people. And because the people were not being taught the proper way to worship God or to honor him by their sacrifices, they were in error. And it all started with what the clergy were teaching or failing to teach. It's a word we need to hear today. Now last week, Pastor Jason Uh, got us started in our study in Malachi, and he did a good job of giving the background information. But I want to repeat a few things just so it's in our mind, and so we can put this uh, particular book in its historical context, and then also see its contemporary relevance to today. You remember from our study, as we've been going through Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, that the people had returned from exile to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And in 516 BC, the second temple was completed exactly 70 years after its destruction. Remember, God had said through the prophet Jeremiah that they would be in exile for 70 years. And so here is this exile that has been completed. The sacrificial system was reinstituted. The altar is there. They're bringing their sacrifices to the Lord and they are growing once again. In 458 BC, Ezra will return to Jerusalem with several thousand more Jews who are coming back to live in the land once again. But the walls of the city are still in ruins. Temples have been built, homes are being built, but they are defenseless. And so Nehemiah requests that he have permission to go back and rebuild the walls of his city. In 444 BC, he will do that. Remember, they have this miraculous event where he gets them to the work and in 56 days they complete the wall. It's amazing what it's done. Uh, He was quite the motivator and leader there to bring them together. He will return to Persia and then he'll come back to Jerusalem. And what he discovers is that not only were the walls in ruin, but the people themselves were in need of reform. And he and Ezra we'll work together on that and also Malachi. What Nehemiah, excuse me, found were these sins that were occurring. Number one, the people had intermarried with unbelievers. So here you have believers marrying unbelievers and turning away from God. You have people that are treating the Sabbath like any other day of the week and it's become a day for business and commerce. You have those that are ignoring their tithes rather than bringing to God what was his due. They're cheating God and Malachi is going to talk about that. And then you have this corruption among the priests. It's not all the priests. You have good priests like Ezra who was faithful to the Lord, but you have these that have compromised and are turning people away. And I look at that list and I go, wow, you know, there, there's things that apply to us, don't they? intermarriage with unbelievers, treating the Lord's day as common, ignoring what we are asked to give back to the Lord and corruption among the clergy. So enter Malachi. He is God's messenger who confronted their sin and called them to repent. And Malachi is to um, Nehemiah here what Haggai and Zechariah were to Zerubbabel. I mean, Zerubbabel and Nehemiah are the civic leaders, godly men, who are working in that area. And Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi are the prophets who are speaking the word of God and calling people to respond to it. So what were their sins? What was going on and what can we learn from what was happening then? Number one, their first sin that they were guilty of here was dishonoring God. They were dishonoring God by showing contempt for his name. And we see that in verses six and seven. And he calls attention to this fact that was just a basic understood law in Judaism, that fathers were to be honored. And God is saying, if I'm a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me? Jewish law was built on that, that a son honors his father, a servant honors his master. The fifth commandment of the 10 commandments said honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Children were to honor their parents and in so doing God would bless them and there would be longevity in the land that God was giving to them. And the argument that's being made here is that if we're supposed to do that for our earthly fathers how much more should we do that for God? If God is our father and if he is our Lord, how much more should we show honor and respect to him? But what the priests were doing was dishonoring God. And they saw no harm in it. They were really blind to it. And they said like, who, me? I mean, what am I doing? You know, we're we're the good guys, aren't we? How have we done anything wrong? But they were guilty. They were as guilty as a child who's got his hand in the cookie jar when you've told him not to do that, you know, and there's crumbs on his face or chocolate on his fingers. And he's going, what? I don't know how those cookies disappeared. You know, who, me? And these priests were responding in that same way. How were they defiling the Lord? By placing defiled food on his altar. And they knew better. They were giving God lip service, but by their practice, They were dishonoring him, and they were letting people get away with their inappropriate offerings as well. In presenting defiled offerings on the altar, they were dishonoring God. They were treating him with disrespect. So how does this apply to us? Well, one of the questions that is raised here is the question, does our walk match our talk? Are we consistent with our profession? If we say we believe and, and love Jesus Christ. Does that show in the way that we live? Are we living out our faith in a way that others can see that? Or are we just giving God lip service and then acting quite differently? For example, if, if you go to church and you come and you act like everything is going great at home, but when you get home after church you are abusing your wife or your children, whether it is verbally or physically or sexually, that's hypocrisy and that profanes the name of God. If you say you're a Christian, yet you are sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend or cheating on your spouse, that's hypocrisy and that dishonors the name of God. If you say you're a Christian, yet you have no desire to pray or study the Bible or do what he asks in his word, that's hypocrisy. I mean, what God is looking for are people who are genuine in their faith, that are committed to him, and are growing in their relationship with him. It doesn't mean that we're perfect or that we're not going to sin, but is there progress in our faith? And can others see that, that there's a difference that Jesus Christ has made in our life? And sadly, these kind of things can happen among the clergy too. A number of years ago, when James Boyce was the pastor at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, and he talked about some of the problems that he saw among the clergy in that day. And he said that there are many who preach who are not genuinely saved. There are many who are pastors, priests, clergy, who have never been born again. They've never come into a genuine relationship with Christ. It's not a new problem. Richard Baxter, who lived in the 1600s, said this. He said, God never saved any man for being a preacher. You know, just, just because that's your job doesn't mean that you really know God. I remember when we were involved with Campus Crusade for Christ and we'd do the training in evangelism and we'd send people out using the four spiritual laws that there would be times when a student would come back or another adult would come back and they'd say, you know what? I was sharing the four spiritual laws and walking through it. God loves you. Man's sinful. We need to respond to that. Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. And they'd go, you know what? I've never done this. I've never asked Jesus to forgive my sins and be my Savior and Lord. And many who claim to be Christians may be religious, they may be self-righteous, but they've never truly been saved. And secondly, many who preach have never been called to do so. They are in ministry because they like the idea of ministry or they enjoy religious discussions or maybe there was somebody they admired who did it, maybe it was a parent who was a pastor and they decided they're going to do that, but they've never been called. They've never heard God speak to them saying this is what I want you to do. CS Lewis in his book The Great Divorce talked about an episcopalian priest who was in hell because he liked the idea of God rather than God himself. And in that book when he talks about his thoughts, you know, it's like he enjoyed religious discussions. He would rather organize a religious discussion in hell to talk about the scripture and what we think it believes or what it means rather than know the living God himself. And there are people like that who don't really want to know God and have never surrendered their life to him. Thirdly, there are many who preach but have no devotional life. In one seminary, 93% of the students acknowledged that they had no devotional life whatsoever. They didn't pray on a consistent basis. They didn't read the Bible. Now, it's interesting. I was just having a discussion with a man recently who talked about a man who had been a pastor for 20 years who admitted he had never read through the whole Bible. Now, how can you be a pastor and have never read through the whole Bible? How can you teach the Word of God if you do not know it? It's no wonder that the church is in trouble. Richard Baxter in his book The Reformed Pastor wrote that the great and lamentable sin of ministers of the gospel is that they are not fully devoted to God. And the question that we need to ask when we broaden that, this isn't just about clergy, but does our walk match our talk? Don't think about anyone else, but ask yourself that question. Are you fully devoted to God? Are you growing? Are you moving in that direction? Secondly, they were guilty of offering defiled sacrifices. We see that in verses 8 and 9, that the priests were offering to God these blemished animals. So Malachi says, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? I mean, try offering these to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? I don't think so. In Deuteronomy 15.21, the scripture clearly says, if an animal has a defect, if it is lame or blind, if it has any serious flaw, you must not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Pretty clear. You could butcher it and eat it. You could have it as a family. You could do whatever you wanted with it, but it was not to be brought as an offering to the Lord. You were to bring to God your very best. And cursed is the man, he'll say, who has a healthy animal in his flock, vows to give it and then does a bait and switch and brings this kind of blemished animal for a sacrifice. Is God going to be pleased with that? No, he is not. In essence, they were offering to God their leftovers, or that which did not cost them anything. Now, years ago, Paul Harvey told this story. It was around Thanksgiving time, a true story of a woman and her frozen Thanksgiving turkey. And you know how at Thanksgiving time, they still do this today, you know, the turkey companies like the Butterball Turkey Company will set up these hotlines because if, you know, somebody's never cooked a turkey before and they're getting into this and they're wondering, you know, how long do you defrost this thing or what do I do or what temperature do I cook it at? You know, they're there, there's a hotline to help you. Okay, so on this occasion, a woman called in to inquire about cooking a turkey that had been in the bottom of her freezer for 23 years. (laughs) That's right, 23 years. So the Butterball representative, you know, she's being very nice. She told her that, well, the turkey would probably be safe to eat if the freezer had been kept below zero for the entire 23 years. But the Butterball representative warned her that even if the turkey was safe to eat, the flavor would probably have deteriorated to such a degree that she would not recommend eating it. And the caller replied, that's what I thought. We'll give the turkey to our church. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. You know, I I heard that. We chuckle, we laugh, but I hope that we would never do anything like that. If we don't want to eat it, nobody else is going to want to eat it too. But do we do that in other areas? Do we give God what's left over of our time or our offering or our gifts? Or do we give him our very best and put him first in our life? There's a story in 2 Samuel where David built an altar to the Lord. And it was on this threshing floor of Arona. And he wanted to offer this sacrifice to God there. And the owner of the property said, David, take whatever you want. Take the oxen and the cart, use it to build the altar. Take the oxen to sacrifice on there. I'll give you the land, whatever you need, it's yours. And David made this statement. He said, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David got it. David understood that the measure of a sacrifice is not how much we give, but what it costs us. What does it mean to us? What is it that we are giving back to the Lord? That's why Jesus, when he was in the temple area with the disciples, and he was looking at what people were putting in as their offering, he called attention to this widow who came in, who put in such a small amount, this widow's mite, And yet he praised her for it because she gave all that she had. It was an offering that God noticed and honored. You see, if if God has blessed us and, you know, you made a million dollars a year, say, and you came and you gave to the Lord $10,000, well, that's not much by proportion. It might be a large amount on a dollar basis, but that's not a large amount relative to how God has blessed you. It's one of the reasons why the scripture talked about tithing or proportionate giving. Each one is they are able because that means something. If you make a lot, God expects you to give back to him what he has blessed you with. If you don't make as much, God understands that. But all of us are called to equal sacrifice to give as unto the Lord. And the New Testament will talk about giving generously. And so the tithe becomes like a, a baseline or a guide for us, but that's not where it stops. If you understand law and grace, you know that grace always exceeds the law. God calls us to give generously. And if it is your practice to tithe, I can tell you that it will cost you something There will be things that you will value that you will give up because of something you value even more. Because you value the Lord's work. And you value what he's done in your life. And you are committed to giving back to him because you want people to hear the gospel. You want people to come to know Christ. You want the nations to glorify this living God. And that's why when you give to the church, you know, I think about this every year. I think, you know, we shared how through our BBS and our soccer camp, how many kids came to know the Lord this year? When you give, you participate in that. When you hear the stories of our missionaries who come back and they share what God is doing in different places around the world, when you give, you are part of that ministry. Through your prayers, through your offering, you participate in that work that God is doing. And that's the way that he has organize the church, each as they are able, each giving to the Lord proportionately, generously, sacrificially. And when we do that, God blesses, and he is glorified, and the church grows. Do we give God our best, or do we give him our leftovers? And thirdly, they were guilty of disdainful service, and we see that in verses 10 to 14. They came to the point where they considered their work a burden and they were weary of it. Look at verse 12. Malachi said, But you profane it by saying, Of the Lord's table it is defiled, and of its food it is contemptible. And you say, What a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously. When the people brought their sacrifices to the Lord, you know, here's kind of what the priests were thinking, you know, hey, they bring their offering to the Lord that's just a lot of work for us you know we got to kill this animal we got to slay it then we got to skin it then we got to gut it then we got to cut it up it's a bloody messy filthy job and that's how they were looking at it and what do we get out of it a few pieces of tough meat that's what we get out of it you know these people are bringing these blind and crippled animals and the lame and so all we get is this little bit Dissatisfied with their pay, they blamed the Lord when it was their own fault that they were getting what they deserved. I mean, they were not instructing the people in proper worship. They were letting them get away with cheating God when they should have been confronting what was happening in that place. And they were looking at their work, their service as a burden. For them, the holy service of God had become a burden and they were weary of it. It was a duty that they were doing out of grudgery rather than out of love. How sad is that? It's because their heart was not right and they did not have this relationship with God where they understood what he was doing. And instead, they grumbled and complained. And you know what the Lord said? I mean, look at verse 10. This is shocking. He said, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors. Oh, that one of you would have the guts to confront this sin, to stand up and say, let's just put an end to it. If this is the way it's going to be, we're just going to shut the house of God. It would be better to have no worship than this worthless worship. It's interesting that this is the verse that caused the Essene community to withdraw from Jerusalem to stop worshiping at the temple. And instead, said, if you're familiar with them, we know them from the Dead Sea Scrolls that were covered, uh, discovered near Qumran. This is a community that moved out toward the Jordan River and lived there because of what they saw happening with the corruption of the priests. Wow. And what does God say? God declares that my name will be great among the nations, that God will be worshipped in spite of what is happening here. If the people he chose will not worship him, then the Gentiles will. And it's really foreshadowing what's going to happen here, that God is going to turn from the Jewish people and he is going to turn and bring the gospel to the Gentiles in this period in history. And how did God show that? Well, God did what no one else would do. In AD 70, God shut the doors of the temple. And he did it by the Romans who came in and destroyed the city, burned the temple. And it has not been rebuilt to this day. God closed the doors of the temple and through the gospel and the apostles, he brought the good news to the nations. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? And what I wonder when I look at this, I ask myself, is God doing that today in America? And I think about that. You can go to the conclusion there. And I wonder, if America won't worship him, then maybe the Africans will. Or maybe the Asians will. Or maybe the Chinese. Or maybe the Indians will. If America turns away from him, God's name will be worshiped among the nations. And I think about that in terms of our own country and this problem of what's happened among the clergy and churches. In the area of evangelism, there are many pastors today who no longer preach the gospel. In their heart, they really believe it doesn't matter what you believe. All religions are kind of the same, take you to the same spot. They deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ. They moved away from the authority of scripture. They no longer preach that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And I can tell you that in our own community. I mean, you just take our own community as a kind of sample of what's going on in the 30 years of ministry that I've been here. I could name names and I could tell you of situations like that, but I'm not going to do that. But there are pastors and priests I have talked to in this community who have told me, you know, if they were living in another country, if they were living in India, they'd be a Hindu because they really don't see any difference and they like the yoga and the meditation and they like the Eastern kind of thought and they think that that's an okay way to approach God. Or I've talked to people who served in churches here and they would say that, you know, they'll talk about Jesus Christ and they'll use the liturgy and they'll use all the language of the Bible but they really don't believe that Jesus is the only way to God. And I've asked them that directly, and I've I've said John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. What do you say? Oh, Jesus didn't really say that. That was added much later. Somebody else put that in. You know, and they deny the authority of Scripture. They no longer believe in the work of Jesus Christ. And I'll say, you know, then, Jesus' death was really pointless, wasn't it? I mean, if you could be saved any other way, then why did Jesus die? Or why were the apostles killed for their faith? They were really stupid, weren't they? That they would give their life for a lie. I don't believe that for a minute. These men knew, they saw, they rode as eyewitnesses, and they gave their life for the truth of the gospel. And we dishonor God. We profane his name when we deny that. And I look at America, and could it be that as an answer to our prayers for revival, and could it be that as a judgment on our land, God is closing the doors of churches across America that need to be closed because they've lost the light of the gospel. And the question I ask is, will the church rise up and be the church? Will the true church rise up and stand for Christ even as the world gets darker or moves away or even as other churches and denominations are moving away from the gospel? Will those who know him stand firm on the word of God and the truth of the gospel? Now here's the deal though. Revival starts with you and me. It's easy to look at others and kind of point fingers. It's harder to look at our own heart. And so I want to close today and I want to ask you to think about these three questions and ask them about yourself. Number one, does my walk match my talk? Do I live out what I say I believe? And has my faith in Jesus Christ so changed my life that others can see that difference? Secondly, am I giving God my best or am I giving him leftovers? Do I put him first in my time? Do I have that devotional life where I'm growing in my relationship with him? Do I give back what he deserves in my offering? Do I honor him in that? Am I serving him using my gifts and abilities? Do I honor him in my home? And thirdly, do I serve him out of love or do I do it grudgingly? So I serve Him because I love Him. And I understand how much He has done for me. And I understand the change that He's made in our life. And I will say, you know, none of us, I mean, we're we're all in progress. We're not doing this perfectly. You know, we may be struggling in certain areas of our life. But is this the trajectory of our life that we are saying, that is my desire. It's to love Him above all else. It's to serve Him above all else. It's to follow Him and stand firm on the truth of His Word. That's the only thing that's going to make a difference in our life and in our world is that kind of solid biblical commitment to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, this is such a powerful passage. It is convicting. And I pray that where you have convicted us that we would repent and turn from our sin. Lord, I pray also that you would speak graciously and give us hope God, thank you that you are merciful and forgiving and that when we surrender our heart to you, that again, all the resources of heaven are available to us. And you have given us everything we need to walk with you and to live in a manner worthy of the Lord. Father, help us to do that. May your church rise up. May there be renewal moments. May there be reform that takes place. May there be just this godly movement of your Holy Spirit that sweeps your church, calls people back to the Word, and to proclaiming the truth of the gospel. We ask it for your honor and glory. We ask it for the sake of the nations, that all people might come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand as we close today? We don't have a Closing him, instead I'll close with our benediction from Jude 24 and 25. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. And all God's people said, amen.